Hey, if you enjoyed the Every Single Album podcast on the Ringer Dish feed, we spun it off into its own feed. Every single album. Kept the name. Nathan Hubbard, Nora Princiati, not only are they breaking down Taylor Swift, right now they're breaking down every single Adele album. Go check it out. Every single album available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Make this summer the best one yet. Invest in a Simply Safe home security system. I have one. I love it. It's a great way to protect your home when you're not there. Um, you need one, especially during the summer. You know what burglars know? People go away during the summer. That's what happens. So when you're away, you want to make sure your place is protected. You want to make sure that you potentially have little camera things you can watch on your phone to see what, what's happening at your house, at your front door, inside. You deserve some peace of mind. Get it today with Simply Safe. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, where I'm going to be messing around with some same game NBA parlays on Wednesday nights. First one's going to be Celtics to beat the Sixers on Wednesday night with Dennis Schroeder, the over for points. I don't know why I'm feeling Schroeder in that one. Go check it out on their app. I think the official odds will be up on Wednesday. It'll probably be in the plus 160 range. Go check it out. Same game parlays. NBA. Wednesday. The BS same game parlay. There you go. Also brought to you by the uh, Ringer Podcast Network, where if you missed the rewatchables this week, you didn't miss it because it's coming. It's coming Wednesday night. We're going to be doing JFK. Yeah. JFK took four people to do this podcast. So that's going up on Wednesday night. Stay tuned for that. Coming up on this podcast, Big Waz and I are going to react to Warrior's Sons, which just ended as I'm taping this right now. And then Van Lathan pops on to talk about LSU finding a new coach and some advice for that new coach and what it means to coach LSU. And then finally, Kenny G, who's the subject of this week's Music Box series documentary. It is called Listening to Kenny G. It's directed by Penny Lane. It's fantastic. And there's some some missing pieces that I wanted to find out about Kenny's life that we didn't cover in the doc, although we cover some of the stuff that's in the doc too. But uh, if you haven't heard Kenny G be interviewed, he's a really entertaining guy. So that is the podcast for today. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, we're taping this. It is almost 9.30 Pacific time. Warriors Suns just ended. Wazden Glambry is here, a.k.a. Big Waz. Um, a reliable guy for me for late night West Coast games. This <laughs> yes, one, sir. This one mattered. This one yeah. mattered. It felt mm -hmm. like it mattered as we were watching it. It felt 
they always said like, oh, it feels like a playoff game. This really did. This felt like yep. game game four of a playoff series. It didn't feel like game one. It felt like the teams had already felt each other out. There was some defensive stuff going on that was pretty high level. Mm-hmm. There was some solving stuff where I'm like, oh, I can't wait. What? Oh, wait, they're not going to play in two days. <laughs> this is this is it. It's just going to linger. Uh, what was the most fascinating thing for you in this game? For me, it's the Suns defensive choices, right? Uh, They have the wing depth where they could go straight up small man lineup, put out Cam Johnson, put out Crowder, of course, Bridges with the two lead guards and do a heavy switch thing because that's been proven to be the best way to guard Golden State. It's like, we're switching all your off-ball stuff. You're going to have to, we're keeping you in front of us, beat us one-on-one. But the Suns are like, nah, we like our big man. We like how switchable Aiton is. And not only that, he gives us an incredible advantage on offense. And so that's what I was most fascinated by, how they negotiated how they wanted to guard Golden State. And it was like, no, we're going to stay big. That's our advantage, which I thought was very interesting. Well, and then the Bridges extension, which was a little polarizing. I loved it because I just feel (laughs) like I want guys who I know could be in a playoff series and can win playoff series. And you need a guy like him. And he's one of the best versions of him. He's actually gotten better this year. I saw KOC tweeted that, you know, he he had Draymond as defensive player of the year, he said, but he's like, Bridges should be in the conversation. Bridges was a monster today and does feel like he's gone up a level. And the deal, I think they got him for under, what was it, under 100 million for four years? I think he's 96, four yeah, years, 90. 96, Man, something like just, that. And the reason I was cool with it is there's not a lot of guys who could do what we saw today. He can guard the Jason Tatum guys, but he can also guard Steph. Now, Steph has shit games from time to time. Mm-hmm. It happens. You throw it out. But he also had a shit game because this team has Bridges and Aiden. And those are two really hard guys to play. Yes. Yeah, and it's not just that he's guarding Steph around the screens, that he's straight up guarding him on an island one-on-one when Steph tries to isolate. Is that he's pinning stuff to the backboard on help side. Like, yeah. He's doing everything on defense. I think Draymond... He's shown himself this year that he's still the best defensive player in the year in the in the league. Yeah. But Mikael Bridges is special. And I think I was on your podcast, Bill, and people thought I was hot taking. I was like, this dude's better than Ben Simmons. Like, the, like it's so obvious what he does for a team that has championship aspirations. Like he's guarding the hell out of Steph. He today he didn't shoot it well, but whatever. He's attacking closeouts. He's making good quick passes to people like Aiton and Cam Johnson. Uh, he just was incredible. Like straight up when Steph had him on the island, he didn't want to attack him, and I thought that was telling. Yeah, and Steph will have these games when you can tell that. He wants it to get going, right? Which is why he keeps shooting. He's just kind of waiting for that first one to go, and it just never happened today. But I also think Bridges is a really hard guy to attack. And this game, I really like this Warriors team. To me, this game exposed the one thing that I think they need to address at the trade deadline, which ironically, I just talked about recently with, uh, I think, Corral Bob or KSC, somebody. It's the loony, It's the loony piece of this. <laughs> which against 27 of the teams in the league, it doesn't matter. But when you have Aiton playing as inspired as he played tonight and Aiton can stay out there and he can switch and you, you can get him in a mismatch, but it's not a mismatch because he has the ability to guard perimeter guys. I kind of need a center that can at least go toe to toe with him a little bit. And I don't know if they think Wiseman is that guy or not can become the guy, that guy mm-hmm. this year. I'm doubtful. 
we've seen Looney. We've <laughs> been with him six years. I think it's a lot to ask from Draymond in crunch time to go against Aiden. We've seen him do it. But I think it's a lot to ask. And especially if it's a seven-game series, they have no malleability other than Draymond in the last six minutes of a game. And that's why I keep going back to Indiana and Miles Turner. And if there was a Wiseman-Miles Turner thing, where those were the principles of some deal, and I'm putting Miles Turner in the game I just watched, they have a better chance to win. I just, that's how I feel. What do you think? Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm like the captain of the Miles Turner f fan club. Hashtag <laughs> free Miles Turner. Yeah. Um, please, for the love of God, send him to a team that matters so he can do what he does in the playoffs, which is elite rim protection. And look, I know his three-pointer waxes and wanes, but like he's a threat from out there, right? You have and to pay attention to him. 100%. And he has to move around. I think the problem for the Warriors, like so many things come to my mind watching this game a couple of things is like the Suns have no glaring weaknesses like they have wing depth they have a big that can beat switches they got two primary ball handlers not one which I, th I think that's what's Golden State's biggest weakness to my mind because if it's going to come down to a team like the Suns being like all right Steph you have to beat the one that beats us breaks us down all the time every possession against quality against length, against quickness, against toughness, against defensive know-how, high IQ, high motor guys. You have to be the one that do, does it all the time. I think that's their biggest problem. Whereas the Suns can be like, look, we're going to let Chris Paul do it for possessions. We're going to let Devin Booker do it for possessions. Yep. And guess what? None of them are as good as Steph at it, obviously. Steph is one of the greatest players of all time at it. But, get, but at least there's two of them. That have right. to do with this. This stuff is going to wear on Steph. I think the the Warriors have to figure out shot creation. Um, to me, when it comes to the very best defenses, the way the Suns tonight demonstrated themselves to be. Well, they've relied on Wiggins this year a little bit. Who can score? But yeah. then when it's a game like this, you're relying on Andrew Wiggins. They Poole is another one who's like a wildcard guy, and he was good today in the first three quarters, but. Once it gets, to me, the fourth quarter is really all that matters when I'm watching a game like this because everything slows down. Everything gets hyper tight. Mm -hmm. The defense has figured out everything you're doing at this point. And you just look at the stuff the Warriors were getting down the stretch. And it, like Draymond, they're not even worried about him. They're not worried about Gary Well, that's Payton. always been the case. Right, yep. yeah. But, but Draymond has figured out this way to impact when the other team's not worried about them. But the Suns were really like, we're not worried. We don't think you're going to shoot. We don't believe there's any shooting situation for you. Peyton's out there. There's that play, what, six minutes left? Just left him alone yeah. for three. It was, it was like they, he could have stood there for 20 seconds. They weren't coming out at him. So Clay's going to help a little bit, but Clay's not he exactly is. Mr. Ball creation either. No, he's um, not. And, and and that's the thing. Look, if Clay comes back, he's going to be another really good perimeter defender, but they got enough guys that remember Clay used to have to guard LeBron Westbrook. Kate, like he yeah. would have to guard every single big perimeter threat him and um, Igudala in tandem. I think they have enough guys where he won't have to do that, but that's what I'm saying. I'm watching this game. And again, the Jordan pool shots, if you're watching it, it's off of golden state's flow, their actions. He's getting it off pin downs. He's shooting yeah. off the dribble off of a screen and roll, right? Like, Somebody's get his man is getting planted by a great screen and he's pulling up and he's firing, right? Like he's coming off of screens and just firing. Like these are off of their actions. Now, when you're playing against a team who's just like, no, like 
we're switching those things no matter who it is. Yeah. And we're every time you catch the ball, there's a defender right in front of you, and you don't have a clean look at the basket. I think the best teams, and we've always seen it every postseason. The Warriors, their beautiful game stuff isn't as effective. Teams are just like, they're more keyed in than they are in the regular season. So I think Jordan Poole is great. I love watching him play. Like, his green light is the greenest probably since Iverson. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yo, this dude, <laughs> he catches the ball. He's like, I'm putting this up. And yeah. Clay is going to have a tremendous impact on defenses and how panicky they get. You know, every game we, we watch the Warriors, Bill, we see inevitably Steph comes off of a screen he gets the ball two guys converge on him easy layup at the basket because he passes it right like Clay Thompson creates a bunch of those like they're gonna get a bunch of that when yeah. Clay comes but I think when it comes down to the nitty-gritty against a team like the Suns who just have the pieces like their wing depth defensively is just so incredible um that, that that's something Golden State needs to be watching for yeah and you can't overreact Phoenix is supposed to win their home now on the other hand Booker was out. And right. so if I'm a Suns fan, <laughs> I'm feeling awesome because Curry yeah. sucked. And now I feel like, all right, we just kind of showed the blueprint for how to at least slow him down. He's going to make more shots than me tonight. But He's also make like more shots than that. Yeah. But they're also, also we won hard. without Booker. We, we, yeah. we beat you without our best scorer and a guy who you could make a case was a first team all NBA guy. You know, at least for the first fourth of the season because I think if you're talking about him versus Luca for that second spot next to Curry, you can make a case it's Booker with the way how well the Suns are playing. So they don't have him, and yet these other guys stepped up, and it's, you know, I think their bench is better. Shamit, who just, it seemed like Brooklyn kind of quit on last year. He's up and he, down. He's up and down. But I don't mind having him out there as a second unit guy. You know, their second right. unit, at least like, I like the shots that we're getting. I wasn't sure they were going in. His defense good is shots. so much improved than when he was with the Clippers. Honestly, like I would go yeah. to Clippers games and watch him. And like, you know, the concept of him was this three and D guy. And I'm just like, ah, this D stuff that you guys are talking about, I don't really see it. He's way better on that end than he was when he was on the Clippers. And Again, and he's like, been in big games too, which I which I he I has. Like. He's been in every single season, big playoff series. That Peyton is the one I don't trust because that Stan Van Gundy at one point was like Belford Peyton. He started for a playoff team last year. I was like, yeah, and the fans <laughs> of that playoff team hated his guts. <laughs> what is your point? Peyton is not the answer. Uh, no, he, if Peyton is the answer to your question, you need to take another test. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but again, like with Book, I think that was a Booker thing. Booker got hurt, so they thrust him in there, and those yep. minutes were were pretty freaking ugly. Like just a bunch of blown layups and. The, the ball handling wasn't there. It, it was nasty. But again, like, I think the key to this game, what it came down to in the first quarter, the Suns had, they they gave up 35 points, but they had 20 points in the paint. Yeah. And the Warriors got off 12 threes. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know. Like, do you trust you, a defense that gives up 12 Golden State Warriors threes in a freaking quarter? And, you know, credit to, to Monty. He was like, no, nah, this is the defense that's going to win the day for us. And over the course of the game, they clamped down on these guys. And it was pretty impressive to see. I, I, I owe the Suns an apology. I didn't realize they were this damn good, defensively specifically. It's pretty impressive. Monty threw a no-hitter except for when he wandered on the court like Shooter and Hoosiers. <laughs> got a technical. I don't think I've ever seen that. It's like I've watched thousands of basketball games. I've never seen the coach accidentally walk on the court 
not realizing that nobody called time out. That was pretty funny. This is like Bizarro, J Kid dropping the soda right. <laughs> on the court. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, if I'm going state, I'm looking at this game and I'm really studying it because mm-hmm. I'm going to see Phoenix at some point. These are the two best teams, barring injury. They're going to cross pass. Odds are at some point. And I would be really concerned about the matchup stuff with them if games one, two, five, and seven are in Phoenix. You know, where it's like, all right, Aiton's out there. Booker and Bridges are out there. Chris Paul's out there. Crowder's out there. What's my best lineup against those five guys? Do I have enough size? Do I have enough shooting? Can I play Draymond with another center and I'm basically playing three on five with the way this Phoenix team plays defense? And that goes back to the, you know, do I need to use that Wiseman piece now? I think Kaminga is untouchable. Mm. But the Wiseman thing, it would would have seemed crazy two years ago to say, I'm going to trade this second pick in the draft for Miles Turner. It's not crazy if you think you could actually win the title if you're one piece away. And I think they're one piece away. I think that piece is the loony spot. Yeah, you know, they, the reason why they even drafted Wiseman in the first place is that their organization, you know, they just believe in size. Like, they're right. really big proponents of, you need big-ass people on your team. Like, they really believe in that. Which well, is going why back to like, the Boga trade, I mean, think of that was the first trade they made. They got size. Always. They want, they want size. Like, the idea of not drafting LaMelo, which was like, he doesn't fit our culture, which was preposterous, like... Ball movement, passing. I mean, this he's yeah, a tough. Golden State Warriors player. But they were just like, no, we want size. So I think you're hitting on something that they themselves believe they need a big body down there. But Wiseman hasn't played a single minute. So it's tough to be like, oh, they're going to move on from him after one season of a number two overall pick. Right. Like, or could he be the guy? Or do you look at Aiden yeah, and do you go, maybe Wiseman can turn into that guy? They need something. I don't think they're that far away, though. And I think if this game is in Golden State, Steph hits one, three, crowd gets going, and maybe he snaps into it a little bit better. But I will say, he had five of the uglier shots that he's taken that I've seen. For I watched a lot of Warriors. He had five possessions that were really, really bad in this game where it made you think like, oh, the Suns have really scouted this. They have really determined a couple things that they figured out. Now, Golden State will adjust and they'll figure out the reversal. Yeah, but and, the sad thing is we won't on, see that game for for weeks. The book on Steph is that length gives him trouble. Like, that's yep. been the story. And it's not that, oh, he can't do anything against length. It's like, that's what makes him work the hardest, right? Yep. Um, and another thing I want to say about Aiton, man, uh, like, watching this game, if I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan, I got a pit in my stomach. Because Aiton is doing everything you need Chris Stapps to do that would Mm. take that team to the other level, right? What he's doing on defense, like, actually, like, his size matters. He's a huge dude. He's a deterrent at the rim. When he's protecting out on the perimeter, he's giving people space because he can make up with his size and his length. And then on the other side, like, putting little guys on him is untenable. He's beasting them and he's get he's finishing in the cup. He uses his Chris he Tapp- uses his length correctly. He feels like a seven plus footer. Yeah. Like you feel him. He feels like a big guy. Chris Stapps does not play like that. And that's the and that's the difference between 
what the Suns are doing and what Dallas is doing. They don't have a threat in that way that like, all right, when you guys try to play us in these gimmicky type of defenses, not that switching is a gimmick, but you know what I mean. You don't play any guys over six foot eight, and I have a seven three guy on my team, and it freaking works. Right, eight, and that's you. You, he, he's not allowing that. He does not allow these little guys to guard him, and it's pretty impressive. It was pr- impressive tonight. I think the one seed is really going to matter this year in the West. Yeah. I like Phoenix's home crowd, and you think like yeah, they got a good crowd. Milwaukee steals that game in game five. They didn't steal it. They took it. But that game came down to one or two plays, right? And Giannis just being one of the freak athletes we've ever had in the history of the league. But if Milwaukee had to go back there for a game seven, I think that would have been hard. I think for Golden State, it would be hard to go back in there. They're both tied at 18 and three. They have four game lead over Utah. I don't see that changing. I think it's going to be a one-two thing. It's hilarious that the Lakers had better odds than both of those teams. <laughs> heading into the season. Um, the Lakers are a robust 12 and 11. But <laughs> you look at I was a, waiting for the Lakers portion of this. <laughs> listen, you know I love nothing more than bad Laker games. Um, but you look at the rest of the West. It, we'll take out Utah. Dallas looks like a mess. And the yeah. on-off stats with them defensively with Luka are alarming. Um, Memphis, Ja already got hurt. I mean, he's coming back, but it's just the way he plays. I feel like that's going to be a recurring thing. He plays reckless is a strong word, but he just uh, fearless is the right word. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're as fearless as he is, you're going to have some, you know, the the bumps and bruises. Yeah. Yeah. The bar has been lowered. So you got them. You got the Clippers who have no Kawhi, who on any given night can lose to anybody. Anyone can go into (laughs) L.A. and beat them. Now, they're an above 500 team, but whatever. You got Minnesota, who I want to talk about in one second. Uh, The Lakers, Portland, and then Denver in the 10 spot, 10 and 10. And the MPJ extension is now immediately one of the worst extensions of all time. (sighs) They didn't have to do it. I mentioned this to Ralph Bob last week. They didn't have to do it. The guy had played 120 games and like 15 playoff games. They gave him a max extension like he was this proven sure thing. He fell in the draft because of his back issues. I just would have yeah. I would have waited as long as possible on that one. I, I'll, I'll never forget listening to um, John Hollinger on a podcast talking to somebody. I forget who he was talking to, but he was still in Memphis during the MPJ draft and um, Porter Jr. came up and John Hollinger said Porter Jr. has the worst medical I've ever seen. Mm. He was in Memphis for damn near 10 years. He said it's the single worst medical we ever got back, ever. Yeah. So, like, this is not really a surprise to anyone who's kind of been in the know about MPJ. It's tragic. I, you know, I hope because, you know, they put out the statement that they're taking the long view here. And so they're opting for surgery because he's going to be a part of their long-term planning. Back surgery is terrifying. I mean, this just blows up. Man, I just think about right after they made the Gordon trade last season. Right. And watching them put the beat down on um, the L.A. Clippers. Not some game where they kind of won. It was back and forth. No, wire to wire. They kicked the shit out of the Clippers, right? Right after embarrassing them in the bubble. And it was just like, no, we're just straight up better than you. We're not scared of you. 
We're one of the best teams in this damn conference, and y'all damn sure not beating us in the series. And then it all just freaking falls apart. And now, like, you're getting ACLs, you're getting back surgeries. This is, this sucks. Bad luck. And they have a guy who's one of the best four players of the league who's still kicking ass. And yeah. you look around, and his three through 12 roster is pretty brutal. This, but yeah. It's like LeBron and Ira Nubel level at this point. <laughs> Ira Nubel. I forgot about that. <laughs> well, it's sitting there for Sacramento as the 11 seed right now. And they're 8 and 14, and they can't stay out of their own way. So what's what's funny is I, I look at it, and you think, all right, two of these teams aren't making the playoffs. All of them are going to make the play-in game. But there's a world. We could not have Jokic and Luka in the playoffs. We might not have Luka and LeBron in the playoffs. We might not have Dame and Jokic in the playoffs. Like, mm-hmm. two got two superstars are not going to make it into the final eight in the West, I think. You, or it could be Paul George, who knows. Um, I want to take a quick break, and then uh, I have another topic to discuss that I have not tipped you off on. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident, and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, Waz, I didn't give you a heads up on this. I've been saving it. I didn't want to text it to you. It's a prediction. I have no inside info. It's just 20 years of reading the LeBron tea leaves. Season's not going well, to say the least. <laughs> I have a prediction. It's going to be in the next three weeks. Somebody will write, don't be surprised if LeBron finishes his career in Cleveland. <laughs> and it'll be unnamed source. He's really impressed with Evan Mobley. There's a certain oh. there's certain symmetry to going back there and finishing it. His Lakers contract is up next year. Bronny graduates high school next year. <laughs> dot dot dot. Don't be surprised if he finishes his career in Cleveland. Second part, and don't be surprised if he takes a major ownership stake with the team 
after he retires in Cleveland. Your thoughts on this fake story that I just made up? I mean, it it would be less surprising than the first time he went back to Cleveland. Okay. Because, you know, because people got to understand, like, people don't remember the decision and the Dan Gilbert stuff and how extremely toxic that was. Like For, for two the years. Dan Gilbert, Gilbert of it all. But the Gilbert part specifically, like, yeah. he was publicly nasty and toxic to LeBron. Talking about that man like he was his child or his little helper. Right. Like he was the help that somehow, you know, he didn't give enough deference to Dan freaking Gilbert. So the fact that LeBron went back that first time, and, and it's been well documented that that relationship was still strained even when he went back. That's why he did the one plus ones and all of that. Like, that was, to me was way more shocking because of the vitriol from yeah. Dan Gilbert, and he went back anyway. You know, of course, he was the championship, fairy tale, whatever. I think the ownership part definitely sounds intriguing. It just feels like LeBron, but, you know, it's not like he's not going to retire to L.A. anyway. It just feels like he's so rooted in L.A. now, you know, um, in a way that he never was in Miami, for sure. Uh, he just feels like he's part of this L.A. thing. So who knows? We'll see. I'm not saying this will actually happen. I'm just saying as a story that becomes mm. a story for two to three days mm. that gets floated out as the red herring to a, to and maybe not even by LeBron's side, just it gets out there. But mm. as one of those red herring stories for a couple of days just to get, oh, Cleveland, what could it be? And then, it, you know, it's leading first take the next day and we go through the whole cycle. I used to be one of those people that didn't buy the concept that LeBron was very aware of the quote-unquote conversation, right? And that, you know, if something was going askew, he'd plan a story or he'll say a crazy quote or just to get the pendulum, like, don't forget about LeBron now. And I didn't buy it until the Steph Curry thing. When that thing, like, sort of took off in 15-16 right. and LeBron was so obviously salty about it, I was like, damn, maybe there is something to LeBron and these headline-stealing tendencies that he has. So, look, the Lakers are a non... Like, they're bad, and they're just not even bad in a way that's interesting. It's just ugly, nasty basketball. Well, they have no outs. What do they do? People, I, I don't know. I don't... I, I, at this point, who takes I don't Westbrook? Know. Nobody. And then... Nah. Poor Frank Vogel. He's like, wait. Bruh. Wait. You're blaming me? What did I do? Bro. You got you guys you guys traded for Russell they Westbrook. You got team. rid of Caruso. You got they rid of everybody I had team. who could defend anyone. It's my fault. They were the number one defense in the NBA two years in a row with a core of guys who suffocated people on the perimeter. Like if if anybody who watched Laker games the last two years, Caruso, KCP, Kuzma, and LeBron were flying around the perimeter. They were yeah. an incredible perimeter defense, and they had AD and Dwight Howard backing them up in the paint. Like, they were an incredible defense to watch. They were fun to watch on defense. That's how they got all of this transition stuff that they were well, doing. That, they're still fun to watch on defense. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> they're fun for you because they're horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, they blew up the nucleus of the defense. Yeah. and was just like, yeah, yeah, Vogel will figure out how to make Malik Monk into a defender. Vogel will figure out how to make um, a nun into a defender. Vogel will figure out how to turn Melo into a defender. Yeah, Vogel will figure it out. These names, it's great. Uh, the, Vogel the, the will figure out how to defend with Malik. 
I don't think I had to defend with Malik Monk, Russell Westbrook, and Wayne Ellington. That'll that'll happen. Yeah. He'll be able to guard point guards with those guys. Look, like Wayne Ellington can play next to LeBron, right? Like in the way that he can be stretchy, but he, he has to be flanked by quality defenders. Like Malik Monk ain't that. You know, yeah. THT ain't that. Like these guys, like the Caruso thing is just, I think I'm going to be saying this from every podcast from now till <laughs> kingdom come. It was unconscionable. Like, you should it, just it announce just... it at the top of every podcast you do. <laughs> The Lakers are complete idiots. My name is Waz. Here's my Caruso (laughs) rant. And then let's start the podcast. It it just makes no sense. And like, he would be obviously so important to what they're doing right now, right? To play him next to an Ellington, to play him next to a Monk as a balance on the perimeter. Right now at the point of attack, they are just getting smoked. And there's no single time. There's no sign of that getting better. And it'll come down to just LeBron and AD bullyballing everybody. I, I've been talking about how I think AD has put on too much muscle, in my opinion. That he has like actually turned himself into an actual center, which I'm not sure is my favorite version of AD. I know he's putting up the stats, but I like the 2018 move moving up and down the court like KG and you know, Duncan in their primes kind of thing. I didn't want him to put on all the extra weight. And I, to me, he looks like a guy who's going to have trouble carrying it too because he gets all these little, these dings, these little minor injuries, stuff like that. So you're just adding weight to a guy who's had a lot of dumb injuries to begin with. Um, what do you see from Davis? I think, I mean, I think that's a problem, but mostly the problem is that his shot distribution is atrocious. He's taking 70% of the shots that he takes from mid-range and three-point land, and he's shooting 32% on those shots. Yeah. Like, that's not going to cut it. And to me, all that means, that's a guy who's sharing the floor with Dwight Howard, Russell Westbrook, and DeAndre Jordan for (laughs) significant chunks of the game, i.e. the paint is clogged. Theoretically, he's a guy who stretches, so that's what he's doing, except his stroke just isn't there. He's just not making jump shots. And this is going back to last season. The bubble was obviously an aberration because he made his threes. He made his mid-ranges in the bubble. Last season and this season, those jump shots aren't falling, which would be fine if he was playing most of his minutes at the five and not playing them at the four. And then, you know, again, your point guard is a guy who cannot shoot. And, like, it's not just that Dwight and DeAndre aren't, like, spacers. Like, they're not even 12-footer guys. They're not eight-footer guys. They're just straight up three feet. DeAndre's six feet under because he died three years ago. (laughs) I can't... Do they they not have scouts? What? Brooklyn wouldn't play him for an entire playoffs when they didn't have a center. Like, and you're like, oh, we should get DeAndre. He'll help us. Um, (laughs) I don't get it. Waz, don't be surprised if after next year, when LeBron's Lakers contract is over, he finishes his career in Cleveland, I'm ready for it. I can't wait. I'm going to be texting you the moment it happens. Uh, last thing. I have a league pass crush. Mm-hmm. It's a team that plays in Minnesota. They're kind of a train wreck at times. Yeah, They employed D'Angelo Russell, who I think would be the single least fun person to play basketball with. I feel bad for his teammates constantly. Sometimes he's good. Um, but I'm fascinated by Anthony Edwards. Me too. I think, and I don't think I've talked about it on a pod yet. 
there's something going on with him athletically that is really different. And I don't want to throw out the Giannis LeBron kind of names, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I don't care. There's, there's an athletic swagger to him that is really unusual. And the best way I could is I was talking about it with somebody today. It's like watching in college when the football players come to play with the, with the actual basketball team. And there's the one guy on the football team who's just such a great athlete he can just walk right in and he's better than everybody on the basketball team. And it's like, man, imagine if this guy played basketball, he'd be amazing. That's kind of what Anthony Edwards actually is because he was a football player until he was like 13. What he's doing as a power two guard, I don't even know who to compare him to because he's, he's like, it's almost like watching if Bo Jackson was a two guard. He's so strong. He's so fast. He has really no idea what he's doing at. He's 20. He turned 20 in August. But the physical gifts, it now makes sense to me why so many of these teams were so fascinated by him as the number one pick or like why, like why you kind of had to take the chance. Um, to be honest, um, I'm delighted he remind, by it. He reminds me of a young Kobe athletically. Mm. He doesn't have the feel and the IQ that Kobe had like automatically where he was such a great playmaker like basically from the Pacers series he final series like Kobe was a great freaking you know playmaker from this from the start at like 21 right he was the the Lakers their point guard was Derek Fisher in name only the primary playmaker was Kobe like Anthony Edwards doesn't have that however nobody can stay in front of him yeah. And when he gets to the club, he's explosive. And that's what reminds me of a young Kobe. He's shifty, he's explosive, and he's big. Like Kobe was, Kobe got drafted at like 6'6, and then he grew to be like 6'7 or something crazy like that. So like he's big, he's nimble, and he's explosive. So in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Kobe. And his shot looks way better than I thought it would this early in his career. I think his percentage is low because he's always taking really hard shots. Yeah. Right? Like he's always taking off the dribble, step back, plant and, you know, firing type of shots. But he reminds me of a young Kobe. People don't remember pre knee injury Kobe. Right. Like he got. Well, that 99, 2000, 2001. Right. He got the knee injury. And then by like 04, 05, he was a little bit more groundbound. But before that. He was lightning quick and he was dunking on people's heads. And that's what Anthony Edwards reminds me of. He reminds me of a young Cole. Definitely the explosiveness. I'm with you. I think the difference between them is he's got to be 20 pounds thicker than yeah, Kobe was exactly. already. And that's the part that's unusual to me because usually when these young athletes come into the league, like a 20 year old, they're not fully formed grown men yet, right? Like you look at like somebody like Evan Mobley. We know five years from now, he's going to have 25 extra pounds of muscle and the whole thing. And we know how it's going to go. I don't know what Edwards is going to look like in five years. I don't, cause you figure just, he's going to get older. You add weight as you get older. Um, it's, it's almost a little Zion-y with, <laughs> with when he bounces off dudes, he wins the bounce. Yes. Like he'll go, he could go into, it could be Deandre eight and it could be whoever. And he goes into those guys. He's not going backwards after he bounces into the guys. And I don't know. I just think I, I see it with the other teams. Like they're really scared of him. They can't stay in front of him. 
he has the Nobody ball and they're all him. like, everybody's like, uh-oh, there he, he's got the ball. He's got the ball. And I don't think he, even he realizes yet. Minnesota doesn't realize it. They didn't even run pick and rolls with him. I don't know why they don't pick and roll him and Towns all well, the time. Well, because they have their point guard that yeah, matters. Russell. The Russell, Russell. I got this. I, I got this. I, look, I, I guess. Uh, look, but my thing about Anthony Edwards that also matters is, you know, another guy with freakish athleticism that often comes up in these conversations is Wiggins, right? But he never had the Anthony Edwards no. mentality. Like, this nope. dude is a freaking pit bull. This yeah. dude wants to rip your freaking head off every single play. Um, he has a motor. He just His temperament. I love his temperament. Even when he's having a bad night, like, he's ready to go next possession. He's not worried about it. He's not in his head about it. And he's, like, the sort of emotional leader of the team. Yeah. Well, because he's, he's the, the coolest fucking player. guy on the team. Yes, he right. cares himself <laughs> like he's 30. <laughs> and I don't, it's already gotten to the point, like, his, his post-game press conferences are great. He's had yes. some really good quotes, but the stuff he says, it, it's just like, it's just clear at every point of his life, he's been the best athlete in whatever was happening. Like if, if he was on the yeah. playground, like climbing the, the bars, he was the best right. at that. And just, the, oh, we're playing kickball. Oh, I'm the best at this. And somehow he has pulled that over to basketball and he's playing in these games with the best players in the world. And you really, you think that he thinks he's the best player in the game. And it could be like, oh, Luca's on the other side. I'm still the best guy. Yeah, nobody and, can guard me. That's yeah. his attitude. I love it. And he's he's generally right. And, you know, last year, there was a game where I forget who Carl Anthony Towns got into a tussle with. It was like a, you know, a brouhaha. And they asked Anthony Edwards after the game. He's like, that was nothing. That was just right. a little tussle. <laughs> that, that's nothing. Y'all thought that was something? That, that's nothing. They got to do that. That's right. that's regular. I just love that. And especially next to a guy like Towns, who, let's face it, hasn't exactly been some type of leader. He's not a leader of men. That hasn't been the it's role tough. that he plays. You know, Jimmy Butler ate his freaking lunch for that very reason, right? And the fact that Anthony Edwards is like, no, I'm going to step up and be the yin to this guy's yang is beautiful to see. And I do share your enthusiasm for this team because I love watching Edwards and Towns work in pick and roll because, again. But they never read it. That sagging to the middle shit, you can't do that with Carl Anthony Towns' jump shot. Like, right. you have to actually commit to coming up on Edwards. And once you do that, He's going to put the Jets on and go by you. It's 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 a dangerous-ass play. I don't know why, you know, they're not running it more. They have to get rid of Russell. They have to get him <laughs> off the team. All due respect to him. They need him off the team. Because uh, all I care about if I'm a Minnesota fan, if I run Minnesota, if I'm coaching Minnesota, if I own Minnesota, I just care about Towns and Edwards. And that's it. Nobody, and I, I like Vanderbilt too. I like a couple of their role guys, but Ultimately, it's those two guys. And anybody who interferes with that in any way, they'll have these games where Russell's like, I got this. I'm going to do my James Harden impersonation. I would just be, I just want Edwards to get the reps. They're not going to win the title this year. Get the reps. Find out if Edwards and Towns can play together. And as they you said, like, can. Towns is not a leader. He's a beta. That's fine. And maybe <laughs> Edwards is like the perfect guy for him. Maybe this is like the perfect personality combo. You have one guy who... You know, he's he's a nice guy. You have another yeah. guy who in every game thinks he's the best athlete in the world. 
that's a nice combo. I like it. That's a good start. But they need to fix and, the other and, stuff. And yeah, and, and, and it should be said, we should talk about Vanderbilt and McDaniels. What like the energy these guys play yep. with. Nas the, way they, the way they fly around on the court is cool to watch. And it's like, Minnesota has something, right? Yes. I don't think they've harnessed all of the gifts that are collectively on the roster. I don't think they're playing to the talent level that they possess yet. But they got something, man. They, they're one of those teams that, like, I could see them in a series if they sneak into the eighth seed against anybody in these possession-by-possession possession games, like winning one-on-one matchups in games and giving a team a run for their money, just giving their their talent level. They, they got talent. I think they're going to become a thing. I think it's going to become a basketball, internet, Twitter type of thing. But I think... Edwards is so kind of captivating to watch. In all of their game, every game they're in is entertaining. Like, I always enjoy, yeah. for whatever reason, they're just a good matchup with whoever they play. The games are always fun. The Philly game on Saturday night was one of the most fun games I've watched all year. And I think Edwards is going to become a thing. Now, how he handles that will be interesting. Um, sure. I, I think it'll bounce right off him because I think his attitude would be, of course I'm yeah, a I know. thing. I'm the best yes, player in the I league. Know. Yeah, I know. I'm glad I know. you guys I'm have great. finally figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, we yeah. telling me I'm no great. Kidding. I know. I've, I've been here I've the whole been time. This. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know another cool thing, Bill, when you watch their home games, the crowd every time he does anything is like, <gasps> yeah, they're waiting for something incredible to happen every time, whether it's a crazy step back or he's barreling to the rim. Like the crowd is so like captivated by what this dude is doing with the rock. It's it's impressive, man. You know who was like this, actually, going way back, was young Sprewell. Pre-choking PJ Sprewell. The <laughs> guy who made first-team All-NBA when he was, like, 23. But it was the same kind of thing. And he and he wasn't as good of an sh outside shooter as Edwards was. Right. But just, like, incredibly athletic and really hard to guard over and over again. Scottie Pippen's head oh, man. in an NBA All-Star game. I was just like, whoa, what the hell is this? Like, I, you never really got Golden State Warriors games in um in New York. Like, obviously, every Sunday we had to watch the Bulls play. Um, yeah. So, you know, you were just like, hold on, Scottie, you know, this guy's one of the yeah, best what happened? ever. What the, what the hell? And Spreewell just dunked on his head and yelled at him. I was just like, yo, who is this dude? Right. Um. All right. That's good. We did a good job. It is now past 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. We're going to wrap up. Waz, we can hear you on Ringer NBA show tomorrow. Ringer NBA show tomorrow. Group chat with Justin Verrier, Rob Mahoney. Of course, Full Court Fits comes out every single Friday afternoon on the yeah. Ringer YouTube. This week, last week I had Wind Horse on to talk about the Kobe drought. You guys should check that out. NBA players are obsessed with Kobe sneakers. There's a drought because there's been an impasse between Kobe's family and mm. Nike or whatever. It's super interesting. You should Fascinating check it out. Story. This, yeah, that was good. And this week, we got Sarah Kustak of the Brooklyn Nets. She's their color commentary uh, person. She's one of the best in the whole biz. Obviously, super plugged in about the Nets. So check that out on Friday. I have a guest suggestion for you. I think you should have Ben Simmons, but it's my Ben Simmons, my son. Let's do it. Let's line them up. But but we we load it, we promote it like but this it like full ben court fits. Ben Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just my idiot son talking about shoes for three minutes. <laughs> ben that Simmons be is doing press? What's happening? Oh no, it's the 14-year-old kid in LA. Um oh, all right, Waz, good to see you. Thanks for coming up. All right. 
This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, a award winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60 day money back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I understand that some things you just want to keep private. Maybe it's something you don't want anyone to know, or maybe you think it's something minor, so why bother? But if you keep everything bottled up, if you let those emotions sit there and fester, it could be really, really bad for you. Sometimes it depends on what kind of family you're from. Like my dad's family is one of those. They bottle everything up, bottle everything up, and then they all just get mad at each other. Listen, talking things through is more helpful than you think. If you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend some therapy. Think about the things you can get out of therapy. First of all, a sounding board. You can learn better coping skills. You can learn how to set some boundaries, maybe how to empower yourself a little better day to day. And if you want to give therapy a try, well, I have an answer. BetterHelp, a convenient and flexible way since it's entirely online right now. It's easy to get started too. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Bill Simmons. All right, Van Lathan is here. We're taping this part of the podcast earlier. It's 10.30 in the morning Pacific time. So if seven more college football coaches jump schools, uh, don't blame us. Van, your team has a coach. Yes. You stole the Notre Dame coach. How much money was it? 95 million? $95 million, Bill. We're in the building at LSU. Very excited about this, man. Very excited about this. So for the people who don't know, and I don't know why you wouldn't know, Van from Louisiana, diehard LSU fan. Diehard. Lives and dies. This is his favorite team. Yes. They affect his mood in the fall, even as he's doing all the other stuff he's doing, including hosting two podcasts for us. So this year it all falls apart. Your coach, who you won a title with, Uh goes off the rails. There's stories. There's there's stories about him and women, which are really weird if you watch them on the sidelines. And it just, it goes sideways. It gets fired. You were psyched Mm -hmm. about it. And then all the names start. So who did you think you were going to get versus how this played out? So this is something I'd like to say. First of all, before we even do this, I'd like to say I am really, really thankful to Coach Ogeron for the run that he had at LSU. Very thankful. You know, we always talked about the fact that Coach Ogeron was uh, was one of us. Yep. It turned out that he was a little too much one of us. <laughs> <sighs> okay. He liked to party. He liked yeah. to get down. He <laughs> was doing his thing. Maybe a little too much. But what yeah. happened in 2019, there is no LSU fan that will ever forget the most dominant run uh, in college football history that that team had. So I want to give Coach Ogeron his props before we move on and talk about the new guy. I had no clue. So when the 
when the decision was made to move on from him, and that was done midseason, when the decision was made to move on from him, I think it was the Sunday after the big Florida win. Um, I, I guess the question was with our AD Scott Woodward having the reputation that he has, he's the guy that hired Jimbo Fisher to Texas A&M. He hired Kim Mulkey from Baylor over to mm. uh, LSU. He also hired Jay Johnson over to LSU, our baseball coach. He had had, he hired Chris Peterson to Washington. He had had a, he's a big game hunter is what they call him. Uh, Jimbo was the talk at first. Then the talk became Lincoln Riley. Then there was pie in the sky, crazy talk like Dabo Sweeney, Mike Tomlin. All of these names were thrown, being thrown around. And of course, the heavy speculation ended up being Lincoln Riley. Uh, at one point, I think me, like every other LSU fan, thought that it was a done deal that Lincoln Riley was coming to LSU. That ended up not being the case. I say all this to say, Brian Kelly was almost not talked about at all. It's a very solid hire, uh, a very, what LSU wants to do now is they want to be, they don't want to have down years. This is a down year for Alabama right now, right? Alabama's team is weak, weaker than it normally is. They're like 11 and one, 10 and one. They're still going to play for the SEC championship. You right. want your down years to still be exceptional, and that's what people down on the bayou expect. So what you want is a coach that can consistently, methodically, year in and year out have you as a contender. And if you look at Brian Kelly's resume, he's done that. He hasn't been able to get over the, t the hump with Notre Dame, uh, but he's had them there every single year. So I'm happy with the hire. I was shocked that he left because it. I, I guess I have no context of what are the best jobs in college football. So let's you know. talk it out right now. Sure. If we're doing a fantasy draft, I would assume Alabama is the best job. Well, that now, would be, of course, it's the best job. Same like as if, we, if we're doing NBA coaches, the Lakers coach is the best coaching job, right? right. You know the team's right. going to spend a shitload of money. You know you're always going to have at least one star, no matter what generation is. And mm -hmm. you're in one of the biggest markets with, the, with one of the best, longest fan bases. So I would say yeah. Alabama would be one. So we can talk about that, though. So Alabama was uh is now the best job in college football but really Saban made it that way and i say that because Fair. prior to that alabama was down they had won a national championship i think in like 91 but after that they had found a lot of trouble being able to compete year in and year out we used to kick alabama's ass right you know, until in, until Saban got there so they're yeah miami kind of took their corner for a couple years it seemed like yeah it was at least the whole in the thing. south so, and, and in the past, if you were talking about the best jobs in college football, you'd certainly put Miami up there, right? Yeah. So if you're talking about the best jobs currently now, uh, it's going to have to do with where the teams are sitting, where they're positioned, and how much a culture of winning that they've had to adapt to. So Saban's made Alabama one of the best jobs. It wasn't before. I would say Dabo Sweeney has made Clemson one of the best jobs. The LSU but that, job, the Clemson one feels, that feels Dabo-dependent to me. Well, then you can make the same argument that that Alabama is was saving dependent. Alabama has an amazing college football history. Yeah, I think it, the history of it. I mean, fuck, Alabama's in Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alabama. They <laughs> Alabama are. had Joe Namath. <laughs> I mean, that's what they. That's what we call Alabama. We call yeah. them the Gumps. Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, we call them the, the Gumps. No, but I, I see your point. Um, but what I'm when we were talking about jobs, if we're talking about historically, then obviously Notre Dame is going to be up there. But if we're talking about right now, let's just say right now, what are the best jobs so we can stop John over it? Yeah. Um, and right now, I would say the best jobs are uh, LSU, 
I certainly think that LSU is one of the best jobs in the country, and it's going to be one of the best jobs in the country for the foreseeable future because of the way the recruiting is. Yeah. Uh, LSU, Alabama. Um, Notre Dame has to be on there, which is what makes this so interesting. They'd Notre at least Dame. be in the top five or six. Notre Dame would be on there. I'd say, even though a lot of people around SEC circles don't agree with me, I'd say Florida is an amazing job which they have Billy Napier going over to Florida right now. I just, I think Florida is an amazing job. I think well, you know, you have Florida, you're getting this incredible recruiting advantage just from the state that you Absolutely. know you're, inher- you're inherently inheriting. Yeah, right. And uh, of the three Florida schools right now, Florida is the one that's having the most recent success. So it should be able to recruit pretty well within the state. Um, Georgia um, mm. is an incredible job, an incredible place to cl- coach. And then I'd say, what about you know, Ohio State? Because you get everyone from Ohio course, at Ohio State, right? That they course, have to be in that circle. Oh, of course, Ohio State's one of the best jobs in the country. You have people there that are committed to winning. Um, and to that degree, Michigan too. You know what you want out of a out of a college football job, in my opinion, is you want the culture, you want the fan base, you want the recruiting soil, um, and then you want the facilities. I would say you want the, the expectations too. You need a little pressure. Like in Michigan, Harbaugh, I, I know a lot of Michigan people, Harbaugh finally being able to beat OSU. Like if he loses that game, then it's like, all right, this is six years of this. Fuck this guy. Where they, they're just, you have a lot of generations of people. Some of them have money, influence. Mm-hmm. And at some point they just want to root for a team that wins. Well, the expectations and, are a part of the culture. So yeah. when I say the culture, you know, if you go to a place like UCLA, where Chip Kelly's coaching right now, um, you have a lot more leeway. But those fans don't expect to win; they're hoping to win. They don't expect yeah, to win. They're happy to be there if it's like an eight-three team. They're like, "Oh my God, we're good this year!" Yeah, it's right. One of those. Right. So the culture, the expectations are a part of a culture. You're just not going to be able to like Harbaugh had to beat Ohio State this year, or his seat was going to be pretty hot. And he's yeah. had what other coaches would consider to be a successful run at Michigan. He's won a lot of games there, but if he didn't start beating a big rival and having them playing for playoffs, they're not going to accept that. What about how college football is shifting? And I mean, I don't even know what college football is going to be in three years. What are the, what co- the, already the conferences are so confusing. I don't know. They, they should just change all the names for them and just the SEC should be called. We have the we have the most money conference. Or like why why even call it the SEC? Isn't Oklahoma going in there? And Texas. Yeah. Which is another reason why Come Lincoln on. Riley chickened out. Oh, Texas is another job we should have mentioned. Texas is another job, one of the best jobs yeah. in college football. There's so you 10... think you think you think Lincoln Riley chickened out? Of course. Yeah, he wanted no parts of the SEC. Oklahoma's on its way to the SEC. Um, he'd have had to coach in the SEC if he came to LSU. He goes out to SC, which, by the way, I'm never going to begrudge a man for wanting to live in Los Angeles, a city right. that I consider to be the greatest city in the world besides Baton Rouge, Louisiana. To live in. Um, to live in. Uh, so I, I'm not going to begrudge him that at all. And he has the opportunity to do some things at SC, has the support of, of an incredible fan base and a nationwide brand. So I'm not saying that going to SC is whatever, but we know he was not in favor of OU moving into the SEC. And obviously he wasn't going to come to to uh, to LSU where the expectations are just different. SEC football is, it's it's not a Saturday thing. Yeah. I, I, 
I wish I knew how to describe it. Everyone describes it. Oh, it's just different. But no, but it really is, though. Like, when you, you look at things, football in the southern part of America sped up integration. You know, you right. know what I mean? It's like it, 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 it's it's a there's a different societal standard and not everybody wants to be a part of that. He wants to go coach some ball. So good to him. But he was definitely scared of the SEC smoke for sure. USC, I can't get a feel for because they've had a couple runs, obviously. Mm -hmm. Their most famous player is OJ. Their <laughs> most famous team was just um, completely in disgrace with some of the scandals they had. Those mid-2000s USC teams, which right. I was living here at the time. That was a thing because the yeah. Lakers sucked. Um, they kind of had the alpha dog status in LA, which is crazy, but it's true. For a couple of years, USC was the most important team here. Kobe was going 40 and 42 every year and USC was all anyone talked about. And the UCLA fans were so mad. I'm sure you've enjoyed that too. The UCLA USC thing is actually pretty enjoyable. Like there's real hatred. I didn't know that until I moved out here. The two real fan deal. bases really don't like each other. So now UCLA is doing better. And then you have USC they go get this kick-ass coach, although I agree with you. It's a little suspicious that he fled. Yeah. He well, went running in the other direction. But still, it's better than any situation I've had in a while. For sure. USC, during that time, it was it's very pretty football. Very pretty football. Mid-2000s, you mean? Mid-2000s, yeah. Yeah. Very, very pretty football. Pretty boy football. Uh, sudden, fast glitzy, glamour, uh, hardware taken down. So when you look back at the run, you can make some arguments that the run is not really as successful as what people remember. One championship they split with us. Yeah. Uh, the, another championship they won outright, and then they lost. And To then, Vince Young, who's now to, a restaurant to, owner. To, to Vince Young, who's doing his steakhouse thing He's now. He's killing it. Uh, but what you can't deny is it was amazing to watch like absolutely amazing to watch Reggie and Lindell and Matt and Mike and all of those guys Carson Palmer even a little bit before them it was really really fun football to watch but you know who knows if he can bring that back if Lincoln Riley can bring that back but he's definitely going to have a chance he's they're going to bring in great great quarterbacks have a great offense his teams have been criticized before for being soft and that was a concern who was coming to LSU because you cannot be soft in the SEC uh, but he's going to have his pick of the litter if he builds a wall around the L.A. area. One of the great names, yeah. too, Lincoln Riley. That sounds Lincoln like Riley. John Grissom. John Grissom, Matthew McConaughey plays Lincoln Riley. Yeah. He's trying to investigate. Years old. 38 mm. years old. 38 years old. 38-year-old college football head coach, which means that if he can build a culture there and he doesn't bolt for the NFL because that's always a thing with him, too, like he, he looks longingly sometimes at the Cowboys job. But if he doesn't bolt for the NFL, he sticks around. That's a prolonged era of winning at mm. SC if he can get it done. A prolonged era of winning. Can I tell you who I was rooting for LSU to get? As Just because we're friends, I had at least a slight interest. I don't like Alabama. I'm on the record as I think Saban's a coward. He should come back to the NFL. I've made that point many times. <laughs> come Why? back to the NFL, Saban. <laughs> Come where the real coaches are. Deal with the Bill Belichicks <laughs> instead of just kicking ass. You're guaranteed. You said it this year. His team's not even good. He's going 10 and 1. Challenge yourself, Nick Saban. Um, but I wanted Tomlin. I didn't to say go they were good. 
I didn't say they weren't good. I said no, they I, were, I know. It's a down, it's a down year. year, and they're like 10 and 1. <laughs> right. I wanted Tomlin to go to LSU. I thought it would have been fun to watch Tomlin coach a college team for like three years. I, and I, I was, it also would have gotten him out of the NFL. But I, th- I thought it, Mike Tomlin, college coach, would have been just amazing because I love Mike Tomlin. He's one of my favorites. I was so fascinated with it. Like, does, how does Mike Tomlin recruit? Does Mike Tomlin go into a living room and just look at the parents and go, okay, I want to let you know something, okay? Your son is going to LSU. I was, All right? That was the thing. It's you, like, how does he you, not get whoever he wants? He was yeah. got 99% of the guys. Yeah, like, I'm telling you right now. I'm telling yeah. you, I'm in, I'm in here. I'm a leader of men. I'm an intense head football coach. Pack him up. Right now, as a matter of fact, I'm not even waiting until the fall. He's coming back on the plane with me right now. All right? Don't want to have any more talk about it. Your son's going to LSU. Like, I was just so interested in how that was going to work. And what what were you Mike... interested in? He would have gotten every recruit he wanted. I, I it would have been so much fun. It would have been like if Denzel was a coach. Denzel's like, I've decided to become a college football coach. I'm just going to walk into people's living rooms and picking whatever players I want. Do you ever know? But like Mike Tomlin does that weird thing to where he weirdly gets jazzed up about specific words in a sentence. You know, like he'll say a whole sentence regular and then he'll be like, uh, you know, we came out with a lot of defensive intensity <laughs> and then you'd be like yo what's up with this guy yeah like you you know what i mean so i just wonder how that would work in college but if you can bring a pro system to college you're gonna have a lot of success man i mean he has the steelers team is still not out of the playoff race and they're an atrocity they're completely done on defense they've had a ton of injuries roethlisberger can't do anything anymore they lost schuster for the year it, they should be one of the five worst teams in the, in the league and yeah. Tomlin could just scratch out. I think for college, that really would have worked. All right. So Brian Kelly, mm-hmm. um, I know he's listening right now. I know he's a big fan. I, I don't actually, but let, let's say he's listening. Um, tell Brian Kelly about what he's walking into, what it means, <laughs> the people of Louisiana. Just give him a scouting report. He calls okay. you. Brian Kelly just called you. He's like, hey, Van, I heard you're the guy to ask. Um, just tell me what I should expect. Okay, this is what you should expect. You should expect love like you have never encountered before in your life. You should expect a situation to where if you can win, you will be maybe the most powerful man in the state. Wow. Who's the most powerful man in the state right now? Well, in that tw- in 2019, you could say that it was maybe Ed, Ed-, Ed Orgeron, right? Unfortunately, he he also agreed. He knew. Why he started acting he knew, like which a is why he started, Which is <laughs> yeah. why he started getting it. When I say most powerful, I mean <laughs> the guy who can make the most happen, the guy with the most sway. Our governor is a gentleman by the name of John Bell Edwards, and I'm sure he's a very, very nice guy, but nobody yeah. gives a fuck what he says about anything. Yeah. The head football coach at a winning LSU school, they care about what you say. Your word matters. Your influence matters. Your ability to change culture in the in uh, in in Louisiana matters, right? All of that comes with that job. But there's something else that comes with that job. People are hooking their lives onto you. There are people who have been paying attention to LSU football for generations that hand it down as a birthright to their children, who get fuzzy feelings in their stomachs at the sight of purple and gold. At the sound of the the fight song playing, I, I look at Mike the Tiger right now, and I remember looking at that when I was five and six years old, going there when my mom was there, right? And 
And those people have their Saturday memories hanging on your decisions. They have the memories that they share with their children hanging on the decisions that they make. They have their the entire pride and the feeling of their state hanging on decisions that you make. So just like you can be their best friend, you can be their worst enemy. And you need to know that these are the people that you need to talk to. These are the hearts and minds that you need to win. We care. And we've always cared. And the only thing that can make us stop caring is if you come here and shit the bed. If you come here and shit the bed, we'll stop caring about you. We'll figure out some other way to cope, which is probably eating and alcohol, and then we'll run your ass right out of town. But he has an opportunity to win, to set a legacy, to to uh, to set uh, rhythms and expectations in the state that rival any other place in America where college football exists. And if he's ready for that challenge, which I think that he is, um, didn't even give uh, Notre Dame the chance to match. Come on down and and eat some of this gumbo, man. It's going to be a fun ride. I think you could have gone Duke and Rocky Four there and done the, <laughs> when Coach O died and Drew Brees and the Benson family and Zion's career. Now you're the one. You're now the you're one the who one. can make our pain. <laughs> you're the one. Drew is going, and look, man, all of those guys, like Drew. It's a great me, run. It's a great run. All he had a nice little guys. one year Zion run where it seemed like he was going to be the best player in the league. Zion. Now, now was, no, you Zion, never bought in? No. Zion didn't give a fuck, man. Does this make this easier for the Pelicans to go to Seattle now or Vegas? I don't know, man. The, like the Pelicans, it, it, yeah. Like, get who cares? I mean, yeah, I'm sure tough. there's some people down there uh, in New Orleans. Remember, I'm not from New Orleans. I'm from Baton Rouge. No, I, I know, but it's Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana proper. Don't give a fuck about the Pelicans. That don't weird mascot. Cool to have an NBA team, but if I didn't have one growing up, and I really don't care about the one down there now. What is Brian Kelly's best move? That the hidden under the radar. You're his Louisiana conciliary. Mm-hmm. One of the first things he could do that could make the actual people who live there go, "Oh, this guy gets it." Uh embrace the culture. I actually wrote something for them. I'm, I'm sending it over to the people at LSU right now. Um, embrace the culture. So the biggest knock on Brian Kelly is we have a very distinct, one-of-a-kind culture in South Louisiana, something you can't find anywhere else in the world. And there's always trepidation about whether or not people are going to get it, right? And the thing about Brian Kelly is we know he doesn't get it. We can look at him and tell. We can look. We can look at Brian T- Kelly right now and tell that his food is bland. He looks like an old bland food motherfucker, doesn't he? He look like you. You can look at him and tell right now, right? But if he comes down there and he embraces the fact that he doesn't really know our rhythms and our beats, then he'll do something that's really awesome. When you come down to New Orleans, you come down to South Louisiana. When you come down to Baton Rouge, New Orleans, if you don't act like you know everything, you'll you give the culture there an opportunity to teach you. And they love that. They love telling you where the good gumbo at. They love watching you try to jambalaya. They love listening to you try to speech because it's something that we inherently want to share. So when he comes down, be open. Don't be closed off. Don't be scared. Don't be scared of the spice. Embrace the spice. Taste Mm. the gumbo and it'll be good for you. He just has to come down and say, I want to learn from you guys. 
I want to learn from you guys. I want to learn. I want to I want to be one of you. And then we'll make him uh, one of us as long as he wins. Okay? You go out there. You lose to Auburn. You lose to Florida. You lose. Uh, nah, you can't have no gumbo. I haven't, been to I haven't been to Louisiana in seven years, which uh -huh. is seven years too long. Um, the gumbo jambalaya, they're in like my top eight, maybe even top seven for going to a city and wanting to sample the delicacies of that city. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one I like more, but I think I have gumbo as a slight, like minus 125 favorite over the jambalaya. But I love both. Because yeah, I can't better. get, you can't gumbo, you can't get gumbo really anywhere. Like if you see it on a menu, if you're at a restaurant, they're like, our special today is gumbo. You'd be like, what? It feels like just this very region specific food that is just, it's like if House was here right now, he would, he would be like, drool would be coming out of his mouth. You just can't get it anywhere else. So my mom comes out, when my mom comes out, she, she makes gumbo, but the gumbo that she makes, my mother makes the best gumbo in the world. And I'm not mm. just saying that. I swear to God. I really, believe you. I'm My mom makes that. the best meat sauce in the world. Yeah, so I'm not just saying that. She makes the best gumbo in the world. But when she makes it here, it's not as good. Because even to... Interesting. Even to... And she knows this. We talk about this. You can't even get what you need in L.A. to make right. the right gumbo. You right. can't even get the stuff that you need. So if you're not where you're supposed to be, it's just not going to be like it, like like it is, like it should be. Chang says that about LA. There's certain things that LA offers, like certain vegetable fruit situations that's just so superior to anywhere else. And it's like if you want certain ingredients, LA is the place. Um, before we go, we have Kenny yeah. G coming on after you. Tell your Kenny, Kenny G. G Thanksgiving story. So we had a trumpet player. I'm not going to say his name. He's going to know who he is when I say this story. We had a trumpet player that was uh at our house one time for Thanksgiving. Um, some years ago. It's a guy who went to high school with me and is one of the best trumpet players down there in Louisiana. He became a very, very, uh, very, very prominent musician. Yeah. So we're all talking and they're talking about jazz and stuff like that. And then I make a Kenny G joke. I say something about Kenny G. And this guy, the trumpet player, goes, uh, well, you know, people joke about those guys, but Kenny G is a fantastic musician. In his own right, you know, people make jokes about Kenny G or other guys who play other jazz instruments like Wayman Tisdale or yeah. whoever those guys are that you hear on the Smooth channel, whatever the channel is, it's always the smoothest Smooth channel. jazz. Smooth jazz. They make jokes about these guys, but these guys are competitive musically with the other jazz greats in their own right. My uncle lost his fucking <laughs> mind. When I say he lost his mind, he's like, Young man, I don't even know you. But if you're about to tell me that some goddamn Kenny G can stand up next to Coltrane or Davis or, or, or Louis Armstrong or any of these people, you need to get your young ass up out of the house. And my homie looks back at me and goes, whoa, 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 why are you talking to me like this? And my dad is like, everybody calm down. And I'm like, no, don't calm down. You guys, please <laughs> express all of the feelings that you have in the loudest way. And, yeah. he, and, and then he actually said that as far as musicianship, Kenny G is just as good as any of those guys. He just doesn't play the same style of jazz. And it was a civil war. Great. Wow. Kenny well, that's, that's why we did this doc. So one of the most polarizing musicians. And yet 
one of the most successful musicians and he totally gets the conversation. He's very aware of it, which is what makes him so interesting. Um, yeah. All right, Van, we can hear you on Higher Learning. Um, we can hear you in the Ringerverse. Yes. Any good Marvel movies coming? What do we got? Ooh. Yeah, we got? we got we got the Hawkeye right now, which is uh, a Marvel a Disney Plus show that's on right now. We're covering that on on the Ringerverse, and then in a couple of weeks, man, Spider Man No Way Home. Oh yeah, one of the biggest, probably not one of the biggest, the biggest Marvel moments since Endgame. So you guys, please, if you're wow. nerdy at all, keep up with us. Pew pew. Hawkeye, what is B minus B? No, A. Hawkeye's an A. A. Yeah, Renner. Is Renner, Renner back? Are we having Renner's, a Renner? Is there a Renaissance? A Renaissance. <laughs> yeah, Renner's doing his thing. Hawkeye's an A. Hawkeye's All definitely right. an A. We're loving Hawkeye. All right. Good to see you, Van Lathan. Congrats Peace. on your coach. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. BK, let's get it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time, that's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. What you use in your personal care routine matters, so upgrade your lineup with Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients. That'll have you looking and smelling your best, like their Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap and Lotion or their Bay Rum Deodorant. They even have some limited edition soaps like their Avengers and Star Wars collections. Those seem like they'd be fun to try. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Simmons or use the code Simmons at checkout. All right. One of the most interesting men in the world, Kenny G, is here. We are doing a documentary about him that premieres on HBO and HBO Max on Thursday night. Uh, it is called Listening to Kenny G. Very proud of it. Directed by Penny Lane. I contacted you last year. I didn't think there was any chance you'd want to be involved, but I was hoping and laid <laughs> out a possible idea. And you said... Eh, fuck it. The, let's, let's, I'll, I'll meet the director. Sounds interesting. You're ready to go. What made you want to do this? Well, I actually just read the text that you sent me, the long text with, with Penny's pitch. So I read the pitch. I just now just, and so it's been like a couple of years, a year and a half ago. Yeah. And I read it and remember how I liked what she said. I just love the way she, that she put it. She talked about how there's going to be some people that are just really mad and angry that I'm so successful. And let's talk about that. So I thought it's very interesting that somebody really realizes that this is kind of absurd, but yet it, it exists. And so let's, let's look at it. It was one of the best pitches I've ever got. And she laid it out perfectly. It's you've had one of the most successful careers of any musician of the last 40 years. At some point you became a little polarizing, but you kind of embraced it the whole time. You, you understood it. You understood the machinations behind it. Yeah. And it kind of became as the, in the second half of your career, just part of the part of your career. And that was it. And you always, 
I always thought initially, I always thought it should be called Kenny G has the last laugh or Kenny has the last laugh. And that we talked about that as a title. I think listening to Kenny G is better, but, um, <laughs> but it was, you've, uh, you've always understood and you, I mean, you've done as well as just about anybody, I think, but I, uh, how did you have such a sense of humor about some of this stuff? Well, you know, I've been hearing it since the eighties and it hasn't really affected me at all in the sense that I know what goes into my music. I know how much I practice. I know what kind of a musician I am. And so when somebody like Miles Davis comes up to me and tells me he likes the way, what I'm doing and the way I'm playing. Yeah. When I read an article about some jazz critic that's telling me that I'm, you know, harmful for, for something, I go, well, maybe you should ask Miles what he thinks. Right. And so I don't really put a lot of credibility in what they're saying, other than the fact that they have every right to say it. And it makes interesting reading. And of course, if you're from that perspective, you're going to have that opinion. So it didn't surprise me. It's just that, you know, you see guys like Miles Davis or other jazz music musicians that say, you know, we don't want to just keep recreating the past. We want to come up with something new. So I'm playing a whole different style of instrumental music. They just don't seem to like that style. But I'm doing But a lot of people that, did. But a lot of people do. And I like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I wasn't doing it because I was some genius that knew that if I did it this way, people would just love this music and I'd be really successful. There was no home for my music when I created it in the in the 80s. There was no, uh, radio wasn't um, playing instrumentals unless it was either real, uh, like traditional jazz. And that was pretty much it. And so yeah, I, was, yeah. I had no home. So why would I do it if it wasn't heartfelt? Well, one of the cool things about the film is really goes into how obsessive you are about your music, which <laughs> yeah. I don't think you get credit for, right? Especially with saxophone players or trumpet players or anybody where we just see somebody playing an instrument and we just think, oh, they just go out there and they just play an instrument. And meanwhile, <laughs> you're like painstakingly figuring out every piece of every song and you're like slaving over like the afterwards when you're the recording and put, yeah. putting stuff in after the fact. And that was the part that I didn't know because I didn't know that much about like what your process was. But I thought it was cool to, to just see like somebody, especially after all the success you've had, who really still gives a shit about how you're yeah. doing stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I, I just hope when people see it, they don't think that somehow I'm making everything really sterile and, and not uh, emotional. That it's just the opposite. Even though I'm painfully fixing a note here or fixing a note there, mm -hmm. it's because there's a certain emotion I want the song to have. And if I just fix like a little vibrato on one note, that to me makes this whole beautiful message happen perfectly. And it's not like it's sterile. So yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I'm like a director uh, that's in the editing room and it's painful. I know Penny had a lot of pain trying to figure out what scenes to keep in and how to edit. And there's lots of there's lots of possibilities. And I listen to my music so much. I go A, B, or C. Hmm. 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 Three days later, I'm going, hmm. <laughs> I still can't figure it out. And finally, somehow it hits me and I and I and I get to move on. But that's why it takes six years to make this particular record. <laughs> I think one of the things you you were such a comet there for six, seven years that, and this happens in music. It happens in sports. Yeah. It happens with authors. Um, pick, pick anything where people have real success. And at some point people are like, all right, enough. Uh, fuck this guy. Yeah. Like, all right. Like at some point in the mid nineties, there are radio stations 
that you've basically spawned, which I had kind of forgotten. And then in the documentary, it's laid out like this whole smooth jazz. Yeah. This is because of you. Because you, and now and now all these people, it's this whole format. And at some point there's like, becomes this resentment that comes in. And part of it is just, I think where fans are like, all right, I, I get it. All right, this guy's had another giant album. But then there's also the other musicians who are like, why was it this guy and not me? When did you, when were you aware of that? That <laughs> the little bit of resentment from other musicians? Yeah, I've always kind of known that, you know, it's just, it's just kind of the way it is. Um, I remember doing an article for Downbeat Magazine, very prestigious jazz magazine. They said, look, we want to put you on the cover. And they do this interview with me. And I'm thinking, wow, this is super cool. So when the article comes out, it's, I am on the cover, but the whole article is other musicians talking about me and why I'm bad at this or yeah. I don't deserve that. I went, whoa, I didn't know that was your, that was your angle. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, you kind of learned the hard way. Yeah, I saw that. And, and it just, when I, when I read the comments, it's just, listen, everybody has, has jealousy in them. And I just think, look, the, the, the whole, the whole thing is open for anybody. Like play your sax the way you want to. And, right. and if that works out great, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not a genius. Like I said, I didn't know that this was going to happen this way, but if you would want to have the success I'm having, just figure out how to do it. I'm not yeah. stopping Worry you. about your own stuff. Yeah, I'm not um, getting in anyone's way. I never thought that I was taking anything away from anybody. And I think that's somewhat of the, the comments that some of these critics make is somehow I'm taking away from what other musicians might have. But yeah. there's, there's plenty. Just, just do your thing and it's, all, and it's all up to you. I don't want to go too much into this because this is what the documentary is about. So we spent five minutes on this. I want to go into the stuff the documentary couldn't really get into because <laughs> we, had, we had less than two hours. One of the things I'm so fascinated by your celebrity golf career. Oh, wow. There's, and we were trying to figure out how do we shoehorn this? And it just didn't make sense because yeah. the way we did this film, it's like, it's about a specific thing. And Penny's so brilliant as a director. And it's like, if we start shoehorning in these other things that I think all of us think are interesting about you, all of a sudden, I always call it like a yeah. documentary is like a highway and you can get off at an exit to get gas, but you can't get off on the exit to go 20 minutes to a Starbucks. Now your trip screwed up, right? <laughs> I hear and you. With a documentary, you, you, you can get off quickly on the exit, but you can't go too far. So, all right, first yeah. the celebrity golf stuff. Are you the best celebrity golfer? Who's better than you? I mean, no, you're I, a little older now, but was, yeah. was there a point where you were the best? You were the goat of celebrity golfers? Who were you competing? It was like you and Jack Wagner? Who was it? Yeah, pretty much. That, that's exactly what it was. Years ago, I'd say that um, he's probably a better golfer than me, but that doesn't mean I couldn't beat him on a given day. And we've played, actually played three rounds together. He's won two and I've won one. So wow. I think back in that day, I think it was, I was up there, one of the top, couple of golfers. Now today, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm older and my hand. Yeah, you're older now. Yeah, but, I, I haven't kept it up as much as I, as I would like to, but it takes a long time. So you and Jack are like the bird and magic of celebrity golf <laughs> for like five years. Who else is in there? Who's in the mix when you're at your peak? Let's see. Who else was in there? Vince Gill was, was in there. Very good golfer. Vince Gill. Vince Gill is a very good golfer. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, mean, I think he was, I think he probably still is. I don't know who else. Any athletes? Because now it's like people say how good Steph Curry is. I don't know if you played with him. I haven't. I'm sure he's good. There's always been athletes that have been great. Um, Marty Fish is is a great, great golfer. 
oh my gosh, is he good? He's amazing. And then there's that guy Smoltz. Yeah, John Smoltz. He was John a good Smoltz. one. Yeah, that guy can play. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of good. There's a lot. Were you of playing for money? Are there money games with you back at, at your peak? There were money games. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, the biggest money game I ever played was with the putter maker Scotty Cameron. You know, Scotty Cameron putters. And if, yeah. you're, if you know golf, okay, that's the most famous putter. I mean, that's the one that Tiger Woods plays with. And these putters are just the most famous putters. So Scotty Cameron is an actual person. And those were the biggest money games I ever played. It scared the shit out of me. No Michael Jordan? No, I never played with Michael Jordan. I played in his golf tournament in the Bahamas once, but it was just in the tournament. I went, We weren't playing for money. Oh, I couldn't play for that money. That's too much. Oh, you, you get nervous? <laughs> yeah. For 50 grand, I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For 50 I'm, grand a putt, stuff like that. I'm, I'm nervous for, for like, you know, 50 bucks on, on something. I get nervous <laughs> for that stuff. How did you get so good at golf? I always went, cause you're, you're touring, you're like, I, like yeah. all of a sudden you're a scratch handicap. Is that, is that just, you were naturally good at it or did you play as a kid? I never understood that part. Well, I did play as a kid, but that's not necessarily a benefit because you learn stuff when you're 10. And then when you're, you know, in your twenties and thirties, you realize, oh wait, I've been doing it all wrong. So now that we have videos and we have these great golf teachers and we have YouTube and we have all this stuff at our fingertips and all this data about how the swing works because the pros will put on this gear stuff and then they can map out every move that they make. Okay. So I had to kind of relearn the physical part of it. And, but, but Bill, I'm a good student. So right. learning, learning to play the sax is diligent practice, practice, practice. I figure, okay. I will do the same thing with golf. I will understand what I need to practice. And I know it will take me a couple of years and I'm going to practice every day at it for such and such amount of time. And I did that and I got a lot better. And I got so really it's like, good. So it's basically the same kind of technical, obsessive yes. day after day, yes. over and over again, yes. trying to figure out the mechanics of something. It's not much different than chess. It's all, it, yes, it's different. It's harder. It's way right. harder. Golf well, is harder. That's why Steph Curry, I'm so interested to see what happens to him when he retires because, you know, he's the greatest shooter I think yeah. we've ever had in basketball. Yeah. And a lot of that is technique, practice, practice, like being obsessive about it. Yeah. And then golf is kind of, you know, same kind of hand-eye coordination yeah. where you just have to have, if you're going to be really great, it's something different. But then the obsessiveness, which I think he also has, so yeah. there, there could be, he might be too tall. I think he's like six, three and a half. No, he's not too tall. I don't. Yeah, it's like right on the fringe. Yeah, because like Jordan's too tall. When once you get six six and up, yeah, there's too many ways a swing I think can unravel. But Curry's probably right at the fringe. All right, so the golf we covered, um, <laughs> the ladies we couldn't really get into. Like you, you had a pretty, a pretty good run there. Uh, okay, well, yeah, eighties, nineties, like like you definitely were. You had some celebrity relationships. It seemed like you were. You were in the mix. Um, you know, what what did we miss in the documentary that yeah. we should have had in there? No, no, I I, I love that that there was really nothing about my personal you know relationships in there. I think that's great. I I I really love that part because I I think people don't need to know all that stuff. You know, they don't really need to know. And and here's the thing, Bill, which is I think I have one of the greatest careers for this reason. People are attracted to me because of my sound and my music, not as me as a man and as like a, you know, like an iconic guy, you know, like, like an actor, you might go, oh my God. And they just can't get enough of this. They just want him or her. Yeah. They don't want me in, in the sense they, they, 
they just uh, something about my music touches them and they just want to connect with me. You're a sensitive guy. Yeah. And, and so for me, it's always been great that nobody really cares that much about what goes on in my private life, which is just fine by me, which allows me to go to Whole Foods and go shopping. I get to do my laundry. I get to do, I get to go to Home Depot and buy stuff. And I'm not like, I'm not attracting a huge crowd by doing it. It's, it's pretty awesome. And you were, for somebody who was so famous, you're, you're, even though you're dating different people, but it was pretty on the down low. Like it was never, No, you seem like you avoided, you never dated like the Jennifer Aniston in year two of friends, like somebody who was like too famous where all of a sudden you're sucked into a tornado of like yeah. this A-list celebrity relationship where now you're getting followed everywhere you go. So you kind of, yeah, I thought you were strategic how you, how you handled it. Well, you know, I was married most of my life during my, my prime. So I really wasn't out well, there. You had that too. Yeah, I wasn't out there doing stuff, so it was it was pretty easy for me to keep a a low pro- profile on that. And when did you get married? What year? I was married in 1992. 1992. Yeah, so you had like four or five years there. I sure did. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but all also the good thing about those years there that we didn't have cell phones. Right. So you know, well, who knows what I did during those years. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> it's all no, no. There's no phones. There's no. Internet. It was way harder now. Like they, like even Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson, they go on like two dates and there's photos. Yeah, I know. Every, I just, everywhere they're going, they can't even go to an amusement park. Yeah, you know the thing that I really uh, here's what I don't like about our modern technology. What I do like is what you see in the movie, where as you talked about earlier, I get to fine tune things and I have the ability to take a note and move it or fix this and that. That's fantastic with the technology. Here's what I don't like. I don't like the fact that if I'm playing a concert in, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, let's say it's just whatever it is, guys are filming it or girls or whatever, and then it's out there and the public can hear how we, see, the the mystery's gone. Like, why do you even need to come to my concert if you can just go online and just see a whole bunch of live shows? You don't really need to see it. Uh, comedy is comedy is like this too, right? Where you can, yeah. they're taping, and a lot of the comedians are like, "Put your phones away. You don't get to tape this. I'm still working out my material stuff." That's like right. That. And if it's not worked out very well, and somebody puts it out there, somebody goes, "Oh well, that guy's not so good, or that guy's not so funny." But we we don't have that chance to work it out like that anymore. It's everything's public, and I don't like that part of it because I just always thought that when if people wanted to like see me come to my concert. If you want to hear me play, you got to come see me play. You can't get it any other way, but now you can get it all the, all other ways. And I don't like that. We hit your hair in the in the dock <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, we but did. But the hair became a calling card for you. I'm going to say late 80s. And at some yeah. point, that was it. You just kept it. But when when yeah. as the hair is growing, at what yeah. point are you like, I'm going with this. This is oh. it. What year, what year are we talking about here? We're talking about my junior year in high school. So I'm Mm. like 16, 17. And, you know, I've got the kind of hair that if it's short, it's still got a little curl that kind of goes out of control. Yeah. It's like, I can't do anything with it. I'm going to grow it long and just see what happens. I didn't know what it would look like with longer. And it went through a really ugly stage where it was too long to be good short and too short to be good long. And then finally... It, it, it got longer and then the curls started to just kind of kind of find them, find their own spot. And I'm like, oh, yeah. hey, this is a lot easier. Now I don't have to think about it. And so it's just been this way forever. I, I, 
don't put a lot of time into my hair. It just is the way it is. And it's so great that I don't have to think about it. I already know, and I say this at my concerts, so this is not a dig, but I know that if I cut my hair, my career will go right down the toilet, just like Michael Bolton's. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that at my show like that. Uh, Michael and I are friends, so he knows I, t- I say this joke, right? Yeah. So I say that and the audience goes, oh, no. And it's like, it's so funny because <laughs> Michael and I are really good friends. And so I, I think that's a funny joke. That's a good one. The music that, I don't, we didn't have series back then. So I guess it's like a radio station when it becomes a format. Yeah. And you're caught up in that but you're not profiting from that, right? All these radio stations, you're profiting in a way. Yeah. But they're basically, they're jumping on the Kenny G bandwagon with this format. Is it going? Are you like honored? Are you a little bit like, uh uh-oh, this could go in a weird direction? Is there's copycats? Like, how are you thinking about this? Because you're at like the peak of your powers and now there's other people kind of jumping on the the bandwagon for it. How are you thinking competitively? Because you're a competitive guy. Oh, I'm honored all the way on it. It's, it okay. it's all part of a big team. You know, the more radio stations that are supporting my sound, great. Um, copycats are never worried about because it's, uh, you know, they're not, nobody can sound like me and I can't sound like somebody else. It's like, I'm right. unique. So I never worried about any of that stuff. It was all great that there were so many people playing the music. And yes, at, at, there was a time when I thought that the re- record companies were signing too many instrumentalists. Yeah, just because they wanted to get in on this, and those, and quite frankly, those guys were not that good. They weren't. They weren't that great. They musicians. felt like it was a trend almost. Yeah, and it's just like, well, listen, if you if somehow they thought, well, you write this little kind of smooth, little snappy tune, you put a little sax on top, but boom, that's all it takes. I'm thinking that's not even close to what I do with my music. These melodies are 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 they're, they're like inside of me, and I have to squeeze them out. And it's not like I just go into the, the studio and just whip out a tune and put a sax on. This is, as you saw in the, in the movie, is painfully crafted to make what I consider like a little masterpiece every song. So I'm thinking, okay, you can put out all the other stuff that you think sounds like me, but it won't even come, come close. What, what year did you start flying a plane? Because that's another thing that we, we have in the dock, but not... Yeah, I mean, you not fly much. everywhere. You freaking flew back... You flew for the premiere in New York. Like you actually fly this thing around North America. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's pretty slow too. So it takes a while to get from one coast to the other. I started in 80, I think 89, 89 was when I started flying. So it's been 30 plus years. And, uh, I don't know. I just, it's one of those things I was intrigued with it. See, these are the things I like to do things that only require me to study something and learn something and get good at it. I don't right. like, to become a pilot. You just have to work at it. It's like nobody else can you. Nobody can pull your hands and make you fly a plane. You have to. You have to do it. You have to play. Know how to hit a golf shot. You know how to have to know how to play the saxophone. So I love the things that it only requires me and my discipline and time and energy to get good at. I love that stuff. So what are what are like two other things that you easily could have tried to master that you decided nah, screw it, I'm not doing that. Like I feel like video games, you would have been amazing if you. I would have been, yeah. I, you, I would have been you had, had the discipline. But what was there anything? Is there like a ship that sailed that you kind of look back and go, "Ah, oh, I could have been great at that. I should have done that." Well, there's a ship that's not quite sailed yet, but it's it's. I'm I'm trying to catch on and try to get. I'm trying to get on a, on the cargo part of the ship. Can I get? Can I guess? You can guess. Fishing. You'll, you'll, you'll Fishing. never guess. No. 
not fishing. You won't get it. All right, what is it? Learning French. Really? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not hard. It can't, it's not hard. It means you just have to study French and like put an hour a day in it. And in about a year, you'll probably be speaking French really, really well. I just don't have that hour or I don't want to put that hour in right now. And I know, I know what it takes and I'm not doing it. But at some point you're going to do it. Well, I take, I take French lessons once a week right now on, uh, online. And I do look at French and think about French a little bit during the week, but it's not enough to get great at it. And I know it wouldn't be that hard for me. It's just that, okay, where am I going to get that hour from? And yet, I, but by the way, I need an hour to just sit and do nothing. My right. brain has to get quiet sometime. I can't always right. be doing stuff. Are you, are you cheating as you get older? Are there, are there PDs, hyperbaric chambers? What's going on with you? What, how, how are you cheating the process of time? Anything? Um, I, yeah, I take saunas every night. Sa infrared saunas? Not infrared, just normal sauna. Normal sauna. Okay, normal what sauna. else? I take, I, go, I take my hot and cold bath every night. I do that Hot and cold home. bath, all right. Hot and cold bath, saunas, and I exercise every day, and that's pretty much what I do. Well, that's all the musicians that keep going as they get and, you know, keep going. It yeah. always seems like, like Mick Jagger, what is he, like 74? But he was yeah. always like exercising, even when he was like 23, 24. Who, yeah. um... Who were you the most jealous of during the course of your career? Who was the one person out there that, I know you're not a jealous guy, but somebody that was out there that you were like, wow, that guy's good, man. No. Nobody? No. Nope. No, no. I'm, I mean. You just worried about you. Just worried about me. And the only people that I looked at and thought were that great are all the old jazz masters. Right. You know, and then I would just study their music, but it wasn't like. I needed to go out and see anybody. I, I don't really go to live concerts that much because, you know, yeah. I'm just, I'd rather just take that extra hour and practice. Right. What <laughs> kept you going once, I mean, once you climbed the mountain and you had multiple albums in a row that made a kajillion dollars and you sold out every arena you ever would have wanted to sell out. And then at some point, some musicians, they go, all right, I'm good. Yeah. Not, not, I'm not going to do this anymore but you like love the grind. I mean, that's one of the things the documentary is about. You still love everything about it. Like, huh? I, are you surprised? Would you have thought that 15, 20 years ago that you would still be care about like the day-to-day -day aspect of it? Oh, absolutely. I'm not surprised at all. I, I, this is the way I am. So, I mean, I'm, I actually start my, my December tour tomorrow. Yep. To me, I'm working as hard as I've ever worked to prepare for any tour I've ever done. I'm, I'm psyched. I guess for me, what, what I love about it is you practice something and then it's time to perform. It's like you're, you're on the driving range. Okay. If there was never a golf tournament that I play in, I'd think, okay, I, I want that golf tournament. I want to prepare for something. So when I'm practicing every day, uh, I'm going, okay, I'm preparing because I'm practicing this great lick that I'm playing. Oh, okay. Can I do that in front of an audience when the moment hits? Can I? Well, Let's go see. And so for me, that's what it's all about. So I would never think I've had enough of that. That's the whole thing that keeps me going. Right. Yeah. Who's the most surprising person who ever told you they loved your music? Well, I think when Miles Davis told me that, I was, I was <laughs> that's a good shocked. one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we did it. We did a show together at, uh, in New York at Lincoln Center. And, um, okay, I was his opening act. So we play the first show. And Miles has, is, he's not playing straight ahead jazz. 
back then. He's got his, he's on to a whole different thing and people are loving it. And he's doing this whole, it's very modern sounding music. So we open up and then in between sets, he comes into my dressing room and tells me, hey, I really like what you're doing. Great job. And I'm thinking, holy shit, that's awesome. And then he says, why don't you open, why don't, let me open up for you the second show. And I go, are you kidding me? Whoa. Okay, so he opens up. We get on, on stage. It's about maybe almost midnight. There's about 100 people left in the audience, you know, out of 3,000. Wow. Because they came for Miles. You know, yeah. I, was just, I, was, I was just starting. And I thought, you know, Miles, you knew exactly what you were doing <laughs> to, to, oh, for wanting to, open up, me, to right. open up for me. And I said that, you know what? And I said, I tipped my hat to him. I said, you deserve it. You, you've earned that right to do that to your opening act. But I, I'll never forget that night for the two reasons. One of what 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 he did there, and also his nice compliments. So yeah, I was. I think I was a little surprised. Both both times I was surprised, and both made me smile. Hmm. What uh, the first time you watched a cut of this documentary? Oh yeah. I what cut, what was that experience like? Because it's so weird to watch a film made about you. Like I know you've been in the spotlight, you know, for almost yeah. four decades at this point. But here's this carefully crafted film by yeah. somebody who's great at what she does and it's about you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are you watch are you enjoying it? Are you nervous? Like what are what are your reactions? Very very nervous. Very nervous. Only in the sense that I know the world's going to see it. So I'm nervous about like okay, what what in there that I'm going to do that I'm not liking that I'm wishing that no one could ever see again. Like that like that thing I told her not to put in in the right. movie where where we won't say what it is because it's super funny, but it's something, some <laughs> video that I did <laughs> back in the, oh yeah, I said, please, you have to promise me you won't put this in. Yeah, so she put it the, in. She put it in, yeah. Um, but I was really nervous. But one thing about Penny, she sent me an email uh, prior to the, to the link to the, to letting me see it. And it said, hey, you may not like the first 12 and a half minutes of the, of the, of the video. Of the movie, yeah, because it's pretty harsh on you. But but she said, "Don't worry, you win in the end." And I thought that was kind of her to say. So when I started watching it, I was smiling because I already knew what was going to be there, right? And I'd, and I'd already seen all that and heard all of that for four decades. So everything she said, I just smiled. It didn't bother me at all. And I'm I was touched that she cared enough to send me that email. She didn't need to though, because I would I was completely fine with it. And yeah, when I watched it, I was just kind of thinking, okay, uh, as I play my saxophone, I, am I going to like those licks that I'm playing? I know she's going to capture a lot of practicing. Shit, is she going to capture me practicing where I nailed it, or is she going to get me practicing when I didn't nail it? And I'm thinking, oh, I hope I'll be okay with that. And uh, fortunately, she got all the good stuff, so I'm happy with that. Last question. Well, we should take say I'll do my last question after you have a new album coming out. We should mention. Yeah, please. Let's talk what, about it. Talk about the album. Okay, great. So New Standards is an album about the sounds of the 50s and 60s. I love the traditional jazz ballads. I love the jazz masters. We're talking about Stan Getz and Dexter Gordon and Miles and Coltrane. And But I loved it when they played their mellow jazz ballads. So these jazz ballads have these sophisticated jazz chords and they've got these melodies. Now, not necessarily do I like the whole arrangements that they did back then, because a lot of times they they did the beautiful melodies and then they started playing these solos that were just way too complicated for the song. It spoiled mm. the song to me. Yeah, I know you can play, but 
but it spoiled it for me. So I thought, can I do music like that my way, but still have that sophisticated sound, but then my melodies and then do the solos the way I would want them to have been done. Not to say that they weren't great solos back then. I don't want to say that. So that was the premise for the album. And I think I did it. I think I did a really good job on it. I call it new standards because I'm not playing the old standards. I'm playing songs that sound similar in the vibe of the old standards, but I'm calling them new standards. So that that's the album. I'm I'm loving every minute of it. All right. Good luck. I, Thank you. I wait before my last question. I forgot yeah. it. There's I have a second to last question. Great. The like the Spotify era of music, where people can just take their 12 favorite songs of yours that they yeah. have and just throw them on a playlist. Yeah. Not the way you originally intended as you're no. writing an album, you're trying to say stuff. Yeah. I know it's like, on the one hand, great that you're exposing, that these playlists are exposing all these new people to your music. On the other hand, not how you originally intended the music to be heard. How have you reconciled that in your head? I, I, I just had to reconcile it because I didn't like it at first. Uh, I didn't like it at all. I, I, I like... I like having to drive down to the record store and get the record. I like right. that. It's a, it's a romantic moment. You go down there with someone, with your friends or your loved ones or your significant other. Hey, let's go see what's new. And then you'd go and you ask a person, hey, what's new music is out? Oh, here are the new records for the week. Oh, I didn't know Elton John had a new record. Yeah. What's it sound like? Well, hey, do you think we should get that? Let's take it home and let's listen to it with some wine or yeah. whatever. So that's romantic to me. Now it's just anybody has it when they want it. So I just basically had to go, okay, that's the way it's going to be. And the fact that um, my music is getting out there, I'm just going to embrace it. So I'm just embracing it. I, I got There's no point in not embracing it. So I'm going to try my best to be on those playlists and do what I can to expose my music. But the truth is, if I could have it my way, people would listen to the records the way I made them. Song one to song 11 in that order. Well, you saw what Adele did, right? No. With her new album that just came out, no, she got I, Spotify to get rid of the shuffle button for it. Because <sighs> she wanted people to listen to the album from, I don't remember how many songs, like one first song through the 13th song in the order she intended. Fantastic. So See, because she's Adele, Spotify's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that for you, Adele. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're not doing it for me, but, that, but that's no, good. but I, but I think she got rid of the shuffle button. So for your new album, I think, uh, it'll be how you intended it from first song oh. all the way through. Cause I think a lot of people, they either do shuffle or playlist stuff like that. So anyway, oh, I Adele, hope, Adele paving the way. I hope so. Adele, if that's true, thank you for doing that. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. All right. Last question. It's important. Okay. You're not going to expect it. No. As, as we cover in the documentary, you're from the, the state of Washington. They lost their basketball team. Uh, yeah. 2000, 2008. The I know. The Sonics, the 1979 NBA champs, stolen away. Yeah. By Oklahoma City. Literally stolen away. We yeah. even did a podcast for, we did a ringer podcast about how the Sonics were stolen away. Yeah, we did. That's how yeah. passionate I am about this topic. I love this. I love Seattle. Yeah. I like the history. I love those old Sonics teams. It is this city that I would say is one of the seven or eight most profitable cities for lack of, I mean, they have a lot of money in there. There's a lot yeah. of tech money. There's people, there's generations of people that care about basketball. Why can't the Sonics come back and how can Kenny help? 
Where are you in this? Why haven't you helped? <laughs> well, you're, I, I, you're a man of so many passions. Why, why haven't you directed any of them toward the Sonics? People need you. you I'm, I'm flattered that you think I could make a difference. You could be part of an ownership group. I was offered part of an ownership when, uh, when, when the Sonics was bought, when they uh, moved to the, um, oh, what was the name of that? Oh, the arena? Key Arena? The Key Arena, that's right. In fact, uh, the family's name was Ackerley. And they, they owned the Key Arena. And I remember when they said, we're going to open up the Key Arena. We really want you to, to play. Um, and I said, well, I'll do it on one condition. I want floor seats for the Sonics. I said, I want them for free. I want to buy them. And so the, they, agreed, they agreed. So you got court sides? I got court sides. I, I got 50-yard line court side seats. I had, two of, I had four right in the middle that I paid for. But I got access, I said, so I made them. So what year is this? Is this 90s or 2000s? It might be right around there. I can't remember the exact It's got to be nice. So Sean Kemp and Gary Payton, those guys are probably on the Gary, team at that Gary point. Gary Payton yeah. and, uh, yeah, yeah, Sean Kemp, Gary Payton. Um, so you're courtside for the Sonics games. And and I would play the anthem many times. So I would just sit in my seat and it's time for the anthem. I literally stood up, walked like five steps Play the national anthem and backstep back into my seat. It was so good. It was the coolest thing ever. Did you interact with the players at all? Uh, they, Not I really? mean, they, they nodded at me. Um, yeah. I remember playing when uh, when they were playing that championship game. I think they were playing against the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, ninety six finals. And and I played the national anthem. And when I play the national anthem, you know, when I get to that high note, you know, I do my circular breathing thing. So I hold that note yeah. so long, and it. It drives some people, like, just like the documentary, it drives some people crazy. And most people go, whoa, it's so amazing. So I did that and held the note. And as I did it, I looked at all the uh, Chicago Bulls guys and kind of pointed their finger, pointed my finger at them saying, like, this is, this is, so, this is for the Seattle Sonics. I'm pointing my finger at you guys. Yeah. Uh, I think they might have lost that game. but <laughs> um, So I love the Sonics. Uh, I was so heartbroken when, when they left. And there should be a way between... Between, uh, you know, Bill Gates is up there. You got Am Amazon. Bezos. Starbucks is up there. With all those guys, you would think that they could get together. And How just about Pearl Jam? Eddie Vedder, who's been on this podcast. I asked about this too. The Pearl Jam guys, you could, yeah. could put together an amazing ownership group. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, just throwing I, it out there. You know, I think I think Jeff Bezos probably has has a better hand, chance of doing the ownership because it's going to cost so much. Right. Well, it's I probably be, three, three billion, two and a half, three billion. Well, yeah, you yeah. gotta. If maybe you could do the same agreement, where if you play the anthem, I'd be happy. You get to at do least at, at least two court sides, maybe four. I'm sure the court sides would be going nuts. Hey, I mean, think I, how much those court sides would be now. Oh my god, fifty yard line, Jesus, unbelievable! But it's like twenty k a game. Oh yeah, I think what easy. Did I, what did I pay? It was like maybe nine hundred or eleven hundred for for game? four. Yeah, that no, makes sense. Yeah, something like that. It wasn't that expensive. And like I said, I, I wasn't asking for freebies. I just said, look, I just, so I made them sign a contract that said, I have the right to buy these tickets in perpetuity. So that means that they, they, wow. they no matter what happens. But then when the team's gone, okay, that went away, unfortunately. I wonder if you could have enforced it with Oklahoma City. <laughs> Maybe, huh? <laughs> just you just could have kept the tickets and just held and then, them high and left them empty every game. And then fly to Oklahoma seats. for the game. <laughs> yeah, you could have floated your plane. Um, all right. I look forward to meeting you in person. I know we're gonna do a dinner at some point. I'm really excited for this, uh, for people to see this film. Thank I loved you. how uh, I loved how great you were with it and great with us. Uh, and you just couldn't have been better to work with. So uh, we all well, appreciated it.
I, I, I want to thank you on behalf of uh, like when Penny said that she pitched the idea to you, she was sure that you were going to just go, no way. So you, I want to thank you because you gave it the green light, Bill. I mean, if what, it, I mean, Penny had her pitch and all that, but you, that, you, you, you're the man that gave it the green light. You thought, obviously thought there was something there. So thank you. I'm, I'm just completely flattered that it was, anybody it, would be interested in doing this on me. It was me and Sean Fennessy and Noah, and we all kind of oh. were like, wow, that's one of the best pitches I've ever seen. We also didn't think you were going to do it. Oh, wow. We just were like, ah, why would he do it? And, but we had the connection and all, and all of a sudden, and then you became enchanted by the pitch. But I just assumed like if you were ever going to do something like that, it would already happen. But sometimes those well, are the best films. You know, the, the funny that you mentioned that, like when, when it came up, I, I presented it to my management team and they go, look, we just did one because they, they uh, managed Dolly Parton. Look, we just did one with Dolly, with these guys from England. Look, at, we know them really well. You'll get ownership. Yep. You're not going to get any ownership if you do it with HBO. Uh, and that's last, and they had all these reasons, you know, money and this and that. And I went, you know, I get all that, but this is happening right now, yeah, right here. You, I've got people excited. I like the idea of it, and I just think it's, I just think this is a better way to go. Let's just do that. And as soon as I said that, they said, "Great, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> we're behind you, and we'll make it, we'll make it the best we can." So good. It's interesting that you thought that it would have already happened because. My ma own management thought that I should maybe just figure out how to do it on my own so that right. I can own it. But this is better. It's, it's you know why it's better because it's it's this is real. I had no control. Like like if I if I had control over this documentary, first of all, it wouldn't be coming out now because I'd still be tweaking it. Right, it would take nine years to make nine years, <laughs> and I would have taken out every lick that I didn't like and replaced yeah. it. And then that that scene where I'm doing that stupid video, I would that would definitely not be in there. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but the fact that it's in there makes me cringe when I watch it. But it's real, and I think that's why people really like it because it's not just a fluff piece about my career and and you know how successful I've been. So that's right. that's that's because of you guys. So I thank you for that. All right. Well, it was great to uh, get to know you during this process. I'm excited to buy you dinner, which will be happening soon. I'm looking um, forward. Yeah, and uh, and I look forward to the film coming out. Thanks for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, Bill. Thank you. That's it for the podcast. It was produced, as always, by Kyle Creighton. Don't forget about the rewatchables. JFK coming Wednesday night, 30th anniversary coming up for that movie, too. That's why we're doing it. And then uh, this podcast, Thursday, I have something special for the Thursday pod. Plus million dollar picks. But stay tuned for that. See you Thursday. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. What you use in your personal care routine matters, so upgrade your lineup with Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients. That'll have you looking and smelling your best. 
like their Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap and Lotion or their Bay Rum Deodorant. They even have some limited edition soaps like their Avengers and Star Wars collections. Those seem like they'd be fun to try. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Simmons or use the code Simmons at checkout. 